Are there really good reasons to believe in God? Is there evidence? Is there really historical evidence that Jesus Christ rose again from the dead? Or are these just things that religious people believe? You may be surprised at the answers. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. This is a radio program that examines things just like that. And today, Pat presents part two of an interview with a leading expert on the existence of God and the historical evidence for the resurrection, Dr. William Lane Craig of ReasonableFaith.org. Now, you may have missed last week's show with Dr. Craig. You really want to get that. Go to EvidenceAndAnswers.org. Not only can you get part one of this interview, this entire series, but also other past shows from Evidence and Answers. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers with your host, Pat Zucker. And how are you doing, Pat? Hey, doing great here, Tony. You know, last week, Pat, we had a very highly esteemed man in the apologetics world. Of course, Dr. William Lane Craig was here, and we have him here this week again. Right, and he will also be here in the islands of Hawaii, February 11th and 12th for these fifth annual Hawaii Apologetics Conference and so we invite all of you there on the West Coast and here in Hawaii to be there at this conference February 11th and 12th. Yeah, it's going to be a real good one. And uh, just to give uh, Dr. Craig um, a little introduction, he is an evangelical Christian apologist, uh, theologian, analytic philosopher, known for his work in the philosophy of religion, historical Jesus studies, and the philosophy of time. He is one of the most visible contemporary proponents of natural theology, often uh, participating in the debates on the existence of God, but setting today's premise will be the evidence of uh, the resurrection is what we'll be talking about. Dr. Craig has been one of the uh, great defenders of the resurrection Mm -hmm. debating this topic on university campuses uh, all over the world. So Dr. Craig, it's a great privilege to have you here and welcome to the show again. Thank you. It's a pleasure. When we're talking about the resurrection, we're talking about a historical event and many people say, well, you can't really know history. History is simply the interpretation of the historian. You may present some facts from your perspective, but someone else is going to present facts from their perspective. And so no one can really know history. It's a subjective thing. How do you respond to that? Well, in my book, Reasonable Faith, I have a chapter on the objectivity of history. And it's important to understand that this sort of historical relativism or skepticism is rejected by virtually all historians on the contemporary scene. Not everybody, there are a few postmodernists, but most historians recognize that we can know the past uh, as it objectively was. Historians regularly differentiate between propaganda and history, for example. It was shown, for example, uh, when Stalin came to power in the Soviet Union. He had all of the newspapers and books and records mashed into pulp and destroyed that had Lenin and Trotsky leading the Bolshevik Revolution. And Stalin uh, substituted instead, Lenin and Stalin had led the Bolshevik Revolution. Well, everybody knows that that was pure propaganda. That was simply false. And in the same way, historians realize there's a difference between mere propaganda and history which actually happened. And so if that's possible, if it is possible to make such a distinction, it means that there really is a a science called history, there really is a past to be investigated. And most historians would say that there's a common core of historical events which are recognized by all historians today, whether they be 
atheist or theist, Protestant or Catholic, uh, communist or, or liberal Democrat. There's a, a common core of history. And so what our goal would be as historical Jesus scholars is not to show that the life of Jesus of Nazareth can be demonstrated with some sort of mathematical or scientific proof, but rather to show that it can be documented to a degree which is comparable to other commonly accepted facts of ancient history. And if you can do that, then you've done your job as a Christian apologist, because then it would be irrational to reject belief in these events of Jesus' life while still holding on to the equally attested events commonly accepted in ancient history. Yes, you know, Dr. Craig, when we're defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we're trying to get uh, not mathematical certainty. A lot of people make that kind of mistake. You've got to prove it, you know, with absolute certainty. No, we're just trying to get uh, to where we're saying it's reasonable to believe in this or beyond reasonable doubt. Isn't that the goal? Yeah, I wouldn't even say beyond reasonable doubt. I, I even think that's too strong. What we want to do is to try to show that the events pertinent to Jesus' life, including the empty tomb and so forth, are attested with a degree of evidence that makes belief in them just as rational as belief in other events of ancient history that are commonly accepted by the community of historians. And if you can do that, you've done your job. Now, Dr. Craig, tell us the difference between the scientific method and the historical method here. Many say, well, you need to prove it with the scientific method. No, we actually use the historical method. Mm -hmm. Tell us the difference between the both. Well, it's commonly thought that one of the differences would be that the scientist has the benefit of repeatability in his experiments. He can reconstitute the initial conditions under which something will occur and then watch it occur again and he can experiment on it and test it and the historian doesn't have that kind of repeatability because the objects of his study are gone now they've they've occurred in the past you cannot get them back and reconstitute them but i think that this is really a superficial difference frankly between history and science because in the historical sciences like geology, archaeology, and paleontology, you have exactly the same situation confronting the scientists. Namely, the objects of his study are in the past. They're gone. And so he cannot reconstitute them. And so I would say that really the historian is exactly on the same level as the historical scientist, like the geologist. The difference is that one is studying Earth history, whereas the other is studying human history. But in terms of accessibility of their objects of study, it seems to me they're exactly on a par. When it comes to the resurrection, where do we begin here? Well, what we have to do is begin by assembling our database. I think that there are two steps in constructing a case for Jesus' resurrection. First, determining what is the evidence to be explained, and then second, determining which explanation of the evidence is the best. So the first thing we need to do is to establish what exactly is the evidence that needs to be explained. Remarkably, there are about five facts that are agreed upon by the vast majority of New Testament historians today. Now, by no means am I saying everyone agrees with this. 
But I would say the vast majority do. This represents, again, the mainstream position of critical scholarship. And these would be, number one, that Jesus of Nazareth was executed by Roman crucifixion during the Passover feast. Secondly, that his corpse was then interred in a tomb by a member of the Jewish Sanhedrin named Joseph of Arimathea. We actually know the man's name who was responsible for the burial of Jesus in the tomb. Thirdly, that on the first day of the week after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers, including Mary Magdalene. Again, her name is always associated with the, the discovery of the tomb. Fourthly, would be that thereafter various individuals and groups of people on multiple occasions and under a variety of circumstances experienced appearances of Jesus alive from the dead. And finally, the fifth fact would be that the original disciples suddenly and sincerely came to believe that God had raised Jesus from the dead despite their having every predisposition to the contrary. And multiple lines of evidence, Pat, would go to support each of these five points. It, it is almost unheard of that we would have four biographies for any major figure of antiquity. So really, we are blessed with a, a, a surplus of sources here for Jesus of Nazareth. There certainly are differences and discrepancies in the different Gospels in the stories of Jesus' crucifixion, burial, the empty tomb, and the post-mortem appearances. But the five facts, as I listed them, don't appeal to those secondary details. The discrepancies are all in the secondary details. The five facts that I stated, as I stated them, represent the historical core of those narratives once the secondary details are stripped away. And it's on those five basic facts of the historical core that historians agree. And here's what is important. These are five facts that Bart Ehrman himself agrees to. Mm -hmm. If you listen to his lectures on the historical Jesus that are put out by the teaching company, Ehrman in there affirms all of these facts, including the empty tomb of Jesus and his burial by Joseph of Arimathea. So the fact of the matter is that despite all the discrepancies he points to, despite all the contradictions that he spies, he himself recognizes the historicity of the core of these narratives in those five facts that I mentioned. Now what we're asking for here, Dr. Craig, is the best explanation that accounts for these five evidences, isn't it? Right. And there have been several alternatives uh, explanations given. I think maybe the most popular one out there is called the hallucination uh, explanation that the disciples simply imagined uh, Jesus Christ resurrected and with that strong conviction went out there and preached the resurrected Christ. Just like there are those who uh, hallucinate being abducted by UFOs. They even right. have uh, marks of uh, being experimented on and everything and go out there and teach it with such uh, conviction. And there's many of them out there who have claimed yeah. to have been abducted by UFOs. Do we mm -hmm. have a similar thing here? 
I think that the hallucination hypothesis is about the only live option or alternative left uh, to the resurrection today. Almost all of the other naturalistic explanations have been discarded. And the only one that's really still debated today is the hallucination hypothesis. And in a sense, you've got to go that route if you deny that the resurrection actually occurred, because you've got to explain these appearances that I mentioned. And if they didn't really happen objectively, you've got to write them off as some kind of psychological aberration on the part of the disciples. So you've, you've pretty much got to go with hallucinations. Now, what are some of the deficits of this theory? Well, one problem is that it has narrow explanatory scope. Now, what do I mean by that? What I mean by that is that it only tries to explain one of those facts, namely the appearances to the various individuals and groups. But it says absolutely nothing to explain the empty tomb, for example. In order to explain the empty tomb, you've got to conjoin to the hallucination hypothesis some independent hypothesis. But then the resurrection hypothesis, I think, is simpler because it has broader explanatory scope. It explains all of the evidence. Similarly, the hallucination hypothesis doesn't really do anything to explain the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. You see, even if these first-century Jews were to have hallucinated visions of Jesus, given the typical Jewish frame of thought, they would have projected visions of Jesus glorified in Abraham's bosom, in paradise. That's where Jews believed the righteous dead went upon their death. So if they were to hallucinate visions of Jesus, hallucinations as projections of their own minds could not contain anything that was not already in their own mind. And so they would project visions of Jesus glorified in paradise in Abraham's bosom. But then that would never have led to the proclamation of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. It, it needs to be clearly understood that the notion of resurrection in Jewish thought is completely different from assumption into heaven or into paradise. And if they had projected visions of Jesus in paradise, they would have at most proclaimed his assumption or vindication in glory, but not his literal space-time resurrection from the dead. So in both of these ways, you see, the hallucination hypothesis, even if it explained well the appearances, has narrow explanatory scope because it doesn't explain either the empty tomb or the origin of the disciples' belief in Jesus' resurrection. That would be just one point that I would make against the hallucination hypothesis. That's a great point that you bring up there, Dr. Craig. Now, one of the objections I often hear, if you want to call it an objection, is that extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. The resurrection right. is an extraordinary event, so we require extraordinary evidence here. How do you answer that? Well, this watchword of the infidel community sounds so commonsensical, doesn't it? it? It sounds so plausible. Extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. But the fact is, Pat, that this is demonstrably wrong. It is demonstrably mistaken. Probability theorists from the 18th century on began to wrestle with the problem of what it would take to establish highly improbable events. And what they discovered is that you've got to weigh more than just the credibility of the eyewitness. Otherwise, 
you could never prove that a highly improbable event occurred. For example, uh, take the winning pick in last night's lottery. Suppose you hear on the morning news the winning pick in last night's lottery. Well, the chances of that number being chosen are so infinitesimally small that they would just swamp the evidence that you have for the reliability of the newscaster. And therefore, you should never believe the newscaster when they report the winning pick in the lottery from the previous day, which would clearly be crazy. That would be wrong. There's got to be something missing here. And what probability theorists saw is missing is you've also got the way the probability that we would have this evidence if the event had not taken place. How probable is it that this number would have been announced as the pick if it were not, in fact, the pick? And what you discover is that that improbability can then counterbalance any improbability in the event itself. So in the case of Jesus' resurrection, you've got to ask not only the probability of the testimony of the disciples, but you've got to also ask the question, what is the probability that we would have this evidence for the empty tomb, the post-mortem appearances, and the transformation in the disciples if nothing had taken place? Well, it is highly improbable that we would have that sort of thing if nothing had happened. And so this can simply balance out any intrinsic improbability that you think uh, is in the resurrection itself. So it's simply false that extraordinary events require extraordinary evidence. That, that violates modern probability calculus and probability theory. That's a great point. You know, Dr. Craig, another uh, objection I often hear is that, well, the Gospels were recorded about uh, 20 to 30 years after the resurrection of Christ. Uh-huh. And so, therefore, you know, it was orally transmitted. And yeah. as a result, myths and legends were able to creep into the text as it's orally passed on. Uh, How do you answer that one? Well, that's the assumption, isn't it? How do we know that legends and myths were able to creep in during the period of oral transmission? What we fail to understand is that the first century, Jewish culture in the first century, was an oral culture. And in this culture, the ability to pass on and retain accurately great tracts of oral tradition was a highly developed and highly prized skill. Jewish children uh, from the beginning were taught in the home, in the synagogue, and in their schooling to memorize and accurately transmit great quantities of sacred tradition, so that this was a highly developed skill. And the disciples would have certainly exercised this sort of care with respect to transmitting the sayings uh, of Jesus as well. And in fact, when you look at the four Gospels and compare them to each, to each other, we are able to discern the sources upon which they rely so that we can close that window of opportunity that you mentioned 20 or 30 years to, to reduce it greatly, right down to even within five years. For example, I'm thinking of the oral tradition that Paul passes on in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where he lists the witnesses to Jesus' resurrection appearances. Scholars have dated this tradition to have originated sometime within the first five years after Jesus' crucifixion. It goes right back to the primitive church in Jerusalem. 
So it's simply demonstrably false that this is something that accrued decades and decades after Jesus was dead and buried. In these discerning the sources behind the written uh, material of the New Testament, we're able to close that window of opportunity uh, to a degree that it becomes highly, highly improbable that these narratives could be the result of fiction and uh, myth-making. A book by A.N. Sherwin-White, who is a professional Greco-Roman historian, and he says that the writings of the ancient Greek historian Herodotus enable us to test the rate at which legend accrues. Uh, the work of Herodotus is filled with all sorts of legends and fanciful fables and stories, and yet, he says, Herodotus was still able to get the facts right about the Peloponnesian Wars that he was narrating. And so Sherwin-White says what this shows is that even two generations is too short a time span to allow legendary tendencies to wipe out the hardcore of historical facts. And when you apply that to the Gospels, adding two generations to the time of Jesus' death would land you in the second century after Christ. But all the Gospels originated in the first century, and as I said, when you look at the sources behind the Gospels, that puts them even earlier, back within the first decade after Jesus' life. So it, it is simply, um, it would be unprecedented historically to treat this as the result of myth-making and legend. You might have details creep into the secondary uh, aspects of the narratives, but the historical core wouldn't be wiped out so quickly through these sorts of tendencies. What are the implications of the resurrection? Well, I think first and foremost it vindicates the radical personal claims for which Jesus of Nazareth was crucified. Mm -hmm. Jesus was sent to the cross because of his allegedly blasphemous claims whereby he had put himself in the place of God. That's why the Jewish Sanhedrin condemned him on charges of blasphemy and then delivered him over to the Romans to be crucified. And if the God of Israel has raised this man from the dead, then he has publicly and dramatically vindicated those allegedly blasphemous claims for which Jesus was crucified. It shows, I think, clearly that the God of Israel has committed himself to Jesus and has vindicated those claims and thereby showed that Jesus really was who he claimed to be, the Messiah, the Son of God, the prophesied uh, Son of Man who would come to judge the world. And what are the implications for each individual now if the resurrection has indeed happened? It has broader theological implications as well. I think, for example, the resurrection of Jesus is the key that unlocks the door to eternal life. Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall never die. So when we look at the end of our lives and wonder, is there anything beyond the grave, or do the lights go out when I die? The resurrection of Jesus is the basis for the Christian hope that this life is not all there is, but that one day we too will be raised to new life in the new heavens and the new earth and enjoy eternal life with, with God forever. So the resurrection of Jesus is the foundation upon which the Christian hope for life beyond the grave is based. That's a fantastic way to conclude these great interviews we've had with Dr. Craig, Tony. 
you know, Dr. Craig will be here in February, February 11th and 12th here for the Hawaii Apologetics Conference, and we invite each one of you to be here. The sun, the beach, and great teaching. What more could you ask for? And as you can tell, Tony, you know, he's a very engaging speaker. We've, we've had great speakers from Norman mm -hmm. Geisler to Gary Habermas, Ron Rhodes, and uh, Dr. Craig will prove to be another very engaging and great speaker. Mm -hmm. And so, oh, Dr. Craig also, uh, you can also visit him on his website. Tell us a little bit about your website, Dr. Craig. Sure. I'd invite listeners to come to reasonablefaith.org and enjoy any of the free resources that, that are there. Everything is free. On the website, there's a question of the week that I answer new every week. There are scholarly articles and popular articles that I've published, reproduced there. We have an open forum where you can discuss these issues with both believers and unbelievers who come to the website. There are transcripts of my debates. There we have two podcasts that you can listen to. One is a conversational program called Reasonable Faith, and the other is called Defenders, which is my weekly Sunday school class that I teach on Christian doctrine and apologetics. And so both of those are available to listen to, as well as a wide range of audiovisual resources that are all available free at reasonablefaith.org. You know, there's so much information that's there on your website, so we encourage all of you to, uh, to go onto the website and uh, search for answers. One of the fun things um, that we're going to get to do when you come here to Hawaii Doctors to ask you a bunch of questions. And, great, um, I'm looking forward to it. Make your case evident for God. It's going to be a great time. ReasonableFaith.org uh, on behalf of Pat Zuckerman for Evidence and Answers